Houghton is just this amazing place. It's fascinating. It's yours for the asking. And that is incredible. Plus, it's cool. Welcome to Houghton 75. I'm James Capobianco. And I'm Hannah Farello. Houghton Library opened its doors at Harvard in 1942. Throughout 2017, we're celebrating the library's world-class collections and support of research and teaching over the last 75 years. This podcast is only one of the ways to participate in our year-long program of events that promises a unique glimpse of some of Houghton's most treasured holdings and the way they inspire scholars and students. Visit Houghton75.org for more information. Close your eyes. Now imagine you're holding a book. It's a first edition by the great English author Charlotte Bronte. What does it look like? What's the binding like? How does it feel? Is it heavy? Now imagine that this book is not printed, but handwritten. Instead of a leather binding or a publisher's cloth binding, it's simply bound in blue paper. Oh yeah, and it's only two inches tall and has tiny writing, almost illegible to the naked eye, especially aging ones like mine. Today we hear from Elaine Scarry, Walter M. Cabot Professor of Aesthetics and General Theory of Value here at Harvard. She's joining us today to discuss a collection of miniature books handmade by the Brontes as children. This collection of nine miniature books provides a rare glimpse into the developing voices of the Bronte sisters, who wrote with authority even as children. Three of these books are currently on display in our exhibition, HIST-75H, a masterclass on Houghton Library. Among the many jewels in Houghton Library, I think the miniature books of the Brontes would be high on everyone's list. Part of the reason why they're so extraordinary is just the size itself. Even having looked at these many times, each time I look at the actual first page of writing, I'm just astonished by the tiny size. What you see once you decipher the writing is that there's this huge discrepancy between the power and authority of the voice and the miniature size of the, of the writing. The voice seems so knowledgeable with the whole underworld of crime. It starts by boasting that since I have been a confidant of all kinds of valets and servants and lackeys, they make me their special listener and they tell me all the dark secrets of these households. Of course, she says it in an even more complex and authoritative way than I've just said it. I mean, it's just kind of ringing with high-handed contempt for the moral depravity of these people, which she's going to bring in front of us in a very sophisticated way for even an adult, but she's writing this at the time she's 14. One of the other books that we have here presents itself as Blackwood's Magazine, and first of all, it, it announces on its first page that it's edited by the genius CB, that is the genius Charlotte Bronte. And 
There you see the Bronte children's facility with all kinds of genres. This particular book has folded into it a true story, a piece of poetry, a military conversation, and certain other genres, and all are done in a very competent way. This one is maybe not quite as extraordinary, but it's pretty remarkable. When looking at these amazing miniature books, we're usually focused on Charlotte Bronte as their creator. And when we talk about the Brontes, we usually think of only the three sisters, Charlotte, Emily, and Anne. But they did also have a brother, who was the co-creator of many of the miniature books, and the next younger after Charlotte, the eldest. Professor Scarry believes he may have had an important influence on the sisters. I guess another of the many features that's interesting about the small books is the relationship between Charlotte and her brother Branwell, and in addition, the relation between Branwell and all three of the female children, Charlotte, Emily, and Anne. Branwell is the author of several of the small books that are in the Houghton Library. They're not quite as authoritative and amazing as those by Charlotte, but they're certainly inspired. Often, Branwell is, I think, undervalued because he didn't in adult life write any great novels and he did have a drinking problem and he did get into trouble in some of the forms of work that he tried to undertake. But at least when they were children we know that he had a tremendous influence and when you read a book by Charlotte Bronte or Emily Bronte or indeed Anne Bronte whose books are less well known but are tremendous social critiques when you read any of those, you think, where did these young women learn this male voice that seems to come out of nowhere and is a kind of oppressor's voice, but almost a person that expects others to thrill at the sound of his voice? It's almost surely from the brother Branwell that they derived that, practiced that interaction between the male and female speaking voice. Branwell may have influenced his sister's use of the male voice, but when I think about novels by the Brontes, it's the great heroines that come to mind. Jane Eyre, Catherine Earnshaw, Agnes Grey, Lucy Snow. Each of these characters have left their mark on literary scholarship. Where are they to be found in these early writings? When Charlotte Bronte first writes a novel, the novel is one that she only published much later. It's called The Professor. And compared to her other writings, it's relatively prosaic, and it all has to do with education. Her sisters were immediately successful. That was with Anne Bronte's Agnes Grey and Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. Then we know that Charlotte Bronte just sat down and in a very short time wrote Jane Eyre, which has been you know, a great classic since the moment it was written particularly in the 20th century and 21st century, it has inspired waves of feminism. According to each wave, there's some different power that resides there. In the early juvenile writings, I'm not sure that we really that often encounter a female voice. Whereas in Jane Eyre, we right away find not only Jane, but these other remarkable young girls like Helen Burns and other children at the Lowood School. This will be true of her other major novels like Villette and Shirley, where it's this powerful inquiry into the female psyche. 
Does it have any of the criminality that so thrilled the Bronte children when they were writing these stories? It actually does. In Jane Eyre, the reason Jane Eyre's engagement with Rochester can't go through is because there's this dark force coming from the attic. Much of the power of the story turns on understanding what that is and who that is and how it could have happened. I think that in a novel like Villette or Shirley, we also see signs of that where we're in a more normal range of human experience, but often people are surrounded by a darkness that could turn out to be very much okay and just indicate the depths of their personalities or could actually mean they're in some alliance with forces that one ought not to be allied with. We did come back to the light in our conversation, don't worry. Specifically to the idea of beauty and the role it has to the creative process especially related to writers, poets, and artists of all types, Houghton and many other special collections collect materials concerned with the act of creation. From my work as a reference librarian, I would say that it's a large theme in researchers' work at Houghton. Well, certainly one thing that I often teach about is beauty. And certainly beauty is connected to the process of creation. From the very earliest times, we've been told that one of the responses to beauty is to create. In Plato's dialogues, Diatima tells Socrates that when someone comes into the presence of a beautiful person, it gives rise to the desire to make children. Diatima says it not only instigates the desire to have children, it also instigates the desire to create a poem or a legal treatise or a work of philosophy. That idea that something beautiful or someone beautiful can inspire people to creation is reiterated across the centuries. Wittgenstein says, for example, when the eye sees something beautiful, the hand wants to draw it. That kind of act of putting us in touch with our creative abilities is very, very important to the work of beauty. I have to admit, since Professor Scary's research deals with some of the darker sides of the creative process, we did delve back into the more bleak sides of creation. In contemporary society, it may be fair to say that bursts of creation are often seen as effects of loneliness, suffering, and pain. Art therapy as a discipline specifically seeks to harness the power of art to get through tough times. Professor Scary explains a little about the relationship between pain and creation. Pain can also instigate the desire to create. The problem is that the person who's in pain is often unable to create while they're suffering. And if they can recover enough ground to begin to write or speak, it can sometimes help diminish the pain. Just think about the reverse situation. If a hammer suddenly hits your hand or a dentist drill hits a nerve in someone's mouth, 
we say that the person sees stars. And what we mean by that is that the whole contents of consciousness suddenly collapses and there's an emptying out of all kind of objects of consciousness. So the attempt to kind of restore that self-objectifying power is part of the work of diminishing pain. The two are kind of going in opposite directions. When I first started working on pain, I felt that people, at least in the humanities, were too blithe about feeling that pain can um, instigate creation. People who were in terrible pain, let's say somebody who's badly burned, is going to have a very difficult time creating and may have to rely on people who aren't suffering. For example, physicians or caretakers can help provide the language for people in that situation when they can't provide it themselves. I mean, I've certainly heard pain patients say how grateful they are for attempts by those who aren't in pain to try to help provide a language. When you inquire into the nature of pain in many different contexts, it does turn out that it is a kind of turning inside out of the nature of creation. It's a kind of dismantling of the creative capacity itself. And so if you can get hold of it and wrench it around and get back on the track of creation, it can actually have the effect of diminishing the pain. And so we end on a hopeful note of the power of creation to diminish pain. We wish to thank Elaine Scarry for coming in and talking with us today. I, for one, can't help but be inspired by the amazing creativity of young Charlotte Bronte. The music you've been listening to throughout the podcast is the Opus 11 Piano Trio in D minor, written by Fanny Mendelssohn, who lived at about the same time as Charlotte Bronte. Thanks to the Atlantis Trio and Musica Omnia for their kind permission to use the recording in this podcast. To see the three selected Bronte miniatures, as well as several other unique selections from Houghton Collections, visit HIST 75H, a masterclass on Houghton Library. The exhibit is available here in the library until April 22nd and can be viewed online at houghton75.org. For transcripts and further musical details, visit houghton75.org podcast. Thank you again for joining us this week. Whether you are listening in from near or far, we hope you will join us for the next episode of Houghton 75.